0: I'm taking just a brief moment to tell you about Anchor, which is the platform that I am using to record my podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. And who doesn't want free? There are also certain tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your iPhone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So please just download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and have fun doing it.
1: Got it. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm so, so, so,
1: so (laughs) excited to finally meet you. I know I'm me too. I mean, we've been like DMing back and forth forever. So I feel like I already know you.
0: I know. Okay. (laughs) So first of all, here's what I had in mind. I would like you to tell my audience because I have a different audience than a lot of your other podcasters and all the things that you've been interviewing with. I've, I've, I've watched YouTube once the whole nine yards, (laughs) um, but I have a totally different audience. Okay. Um, tell me who you identify yourself with, like.
1: Who I identify myself with.
0: Yeah. What do you identify yourself as like an actor? I mean, an actress, uh, um, a a wife, a mother, a writer, you're so Mm -hmm. many things.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing. I just, you know, I used to put titles to my names. So I would be an actress, a director, a producer, then now an author and writer, you know, a wife, a, a mother now, which I can't believe that I am. But I also think the main thing is like, I am a human among humans. So I try to just go by that. Because anytime I put a title to myself, it, it separates me from other people. So it's, I feel like now I'm just trying to just be present with who I am. So I'm just me, which is, sounds silly at the same time. But yeah, I have a lot of professions. I
0: don't think so, because I have a lot going on too. When somebody asked me that question, I'm like, hmm, I'm a wife. I am a mother. I, mm-hmm. I, I am an entrepreneur. I am a podcaster. I'm a life coach. You know, yeah,
1: I'm, I mean, those are the things like I forgot podcast hosts. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot all these other things because I am. I, I work with celebrity clients for sex and love addiction that people don't know about. And I've been working, you know, that's like a, people don't know. I do that on top. I have a lot of clients. Um, and, and
0: also, so. aren't you working um, like doing some stuff for the army? Yeah,
1: I I work with the USO and I've done okay. tours over Afghanistan and Iraq and I be of service to them. I go visit bases. I've done that for a couple of years. Yeah, so I'm very the military and animal shelter. So yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So this is just Brienne. So welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very okay. much. So um, what's one thing that mm-hmm. you Wish We're going to talk about the book. Okay. Okay. So what's one thing that you wish you would have known before you started writing the book?
1: Oh God, that's like a lot. I think the first thing is when I wrote it, I actually never thought anything was going to happen with it. It was actually more like a bet from my husband, which I've talked about. He kept bothering me to take this writing class because my friend Jana Kramer and I were pitching this show about sex and love addiction all over town. And what was happening was people were changing the the concept of the show and I was getting frustrated and my husband's like, you have these stories that need to be told now and you're waiting for someone to tell you yes. So take this writing course. And I kept being like, leave me alone. I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. I'm not a writer. I'm an actor. I have no interest. So when I finally say yes and I took this 90 day writing course, I wrote the first draft as a memoir in 45 days. So I just put everything in it. Like it wasn't even me. It felt like writing it. So I just went. And then when I was doing the rewrites with my editor and stuff, I just all this imagination, other people's stories after a decade of recovery, I just put everything in there and I made it fiction. So no one can sue me. No one can like come after me. I'm not breaking anybody's anonymity. Um, You don't know what stories are mine or other people's, but here's the thing. When I started doing interviews, when (laughs) I started, when I recorded the audio book, which I didn't want to, I realized, oh crap, all this stuff is out there and people don't know what stories are mine. So they're going to form their own perception And I have to keep reminding people it's fiction. You don't know it's fiction. So, you know, it, you know, it bothered my mom a little bit. It, you know, people close to me were like, whoa, I didn't know that happened to you. So I think when I first wrote it, I didn't realize like, once you put all your crap out there, all the horrible things you've done, you've thought you've almost done, that there was gonna be a little bit of a backlash, a little bit, I have to be honest. And I lost a really good friend over the book. Um, Mm. Yeah, it-
0: That's kind of their problem.
1: It is their problem. And I know that now, like God takes care of me. Higher power takes care of me. It's something when you own your truth that you hold up a mirror for other people to own their truth. And I think sometimes it's too difficult, which I totally understand. But yeah, I didn't realize like that outcome could happen, you know? So that's what I wasn't prepared for.
0: I remember right after it started that you, um, Kind of got your feelings hurt because you saw some negativity and you really had mm-hmm. to work on that but you know what no matter what any of us do or say whatever somebody's gonna have something negative to say and and we just have yeah. to let it go
1: yeah i got my first bad review it was devastating it was right you know they were upset it wasn't pure memoir they didn't like that i wrote it in the style like it's a long share it's like in our program, you have long shares, I speak all over the world. So you talk for an hour about your story. And I wanted the main character Roxanne to tell the first year of her recovery in sex and love addiction and how hard it is and how much so much of our society struggles with it. And I really wanted it to be universal and to have somebody sit there and say, it's not memoir. I don't like the writing style. It just was really heartbreaking. But then I had to take myself out of it and be like, this book wasn't actually for me. It was for right. me to be of service to other people and it's not really about me. And people are allowed to have their opinions and it has nothing to do with me. That's so right. that was a learning process too, which as an actor, I'm used to rejection, bad reviews. You know, I've been an actor, working actor for 20 years, and you would think I would have like a thick skin, but, but when this it's was my a truth, whole
0: different thing. This was a whole totally different thing. So yeah. Okay, so what do you feel was your biggest failure, if there was one? And if so, what did you learn from it?
1: That is so crazy that you ask that, because as an addict, I feel like a failure all the time. Really? Yeah, it's that's the tragedy of having an addict mind, that we look at situations and we twist them where they didn't work out to our expectation or my fantasy of what a situation should look like. And I have to constantly remind myself, like no matter what I do in this world, the whole inside of me, it's never enough. And I have to constantly work on just self-love, being enough, just being, and that everything I do is in service of other people. And when I look at it that way, I'm a huge success. Like, I help people on a daily basis. I'm of Absolutely. service. I'm authentic. But I would say the main failure was, I guess, living so long thinking outside things were going to fix me. Right. Like, I feel like I wasted so much of my 20s, like looking for this career. The moment I was on a billboard, I thought it was you know, I was going to be full. Like when I got my first series, all that stuff, it was like, it was so empty because I was so empty. Like you cannot look at outside things to fix, you know, much, how much your career, money in the bank, a husband, a son or whatever. So I feel like I failed in that sense, but then I wouldn't be where I am. So it's not a failure.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um,
0: What is your favorite chapter in the book? Oh my
1: god. Okay, so my favorite chapter to write
0: Crazy. and rewrite is chapter
1: 8. I just love but that chapter. I oh good.
0: I was like, I wonder if she'll pick the same one as me. I mean, I have I do. Chapter 3 is good, really good. Mm-hmm. The whole book's good. But chapter Aww. 8 is my favorite. What's a favorite about that to you?
1: I don't know. I think that specific chapter, I was writing like a movie and a television show. So I was visualizing as a director and a storyteller what it would look like on camera. So when I got to write it, I really immersed myself in the visuals. Um, So that was exciting. And I love chapter 11. Every time I read that chapter or read it for someone, I always end up crying at the end. Me too. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that one's a good one. And the ones I hate, which I I hated rewriting chapter five, six, and seven, because it was like yeah. looking back at the why adulting up, compare and despair, because those are like character defects that still live with me. So I
0: hate well, that. It. That hard. was like torture. That it was-, was
1: torture, pure torture.
0: But you know what? <laughs> for for the readers we see that torture and everything and I think it helps us good
1: I that's uh, that made my day because honestly every time I rewrote those I wanted to take the book and just like throw it against the wall and give up like it every time I read those it dredges up all this past it's just it was really brutal to write all that down
0: All right. So my next question. Okay. (laughs) Because I know you're like got other stuff to do here too.
1: (laughs) No, I'm here. All right.
0: So (laughs) what question would you have someone ask themselves if they didn't know that they were actually an addict? Uh, That's
1: a great question. Thank you for asking that. I think the first thing I would ask you, do you have toxic relationships in your life? Do you have people that create drama and that don't show up for you? Is there always like an inconsistency? Because that's the main thing. Sex and love addiction doesn't just affect love relationships. It affects family. It affects friendships. It affects every relationship in your life. So that's the first, pers- first question I always ask somebody when I'm working with them, then when I'm speaking out of recovery. If you have drama in your life in relationships, that is the first sign that there's an intimacy problem, an unavailable problem, picking unavailable people, being unavailable yourself. And that's the main thing I would
0: ask always. Okay. All right. I, I, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a couple of friends that, you know, I consider them kind of in a narcissistic relationship too, but they kind mm-hmm. of all can go together. And, and these, these men don't want to show up. They want to send all these pictures and they want them to send pictures back and forth, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes time to meeting up they always come up with an excuse.
1: Yeah. Cause what the texting, what the DMing does is, is, a, it's a form of fake intimacy. It's not real. You're actually not connected to the other person. You could talk to somebody over the phone and through text and actually not know them. You could talk to them for months and months and months, because when you're in person with another person, that's where the real intimacy occurs. And you can see exactly. who the person is because on a text message, on a DM, on a FaceTime, you are not getting the real person.
0: You are never going to get the real person. Exactly. And that's what I keep telling them, like, just get rid of them. They're they're toxic.
1: But But okay. then I would tell your friends that are keeping them around is where in you are you unavailable? Where in you are picking somebody that doesn't actually show up as a whole person because that's the thing to look at you can't control what these guys are doing or these people are doing but you control why do I keep attracting these people that are not available
0: or why are they attractive to you
1: that's true but it's usually because in you you are not available in you doesn't actually want someone to show up for you or you're lacking the self-love or you're looking and trying to make this person be available to so it gives you your self-worth
0: yeah thank you you are i i keep telling i keep telling there's two of them and i keep telling them i just i don't understand why you even text them back why don't you just block them and be send them
1: my book send them my book they can just read all about it i mean tattoo girl has that problem (laughs) You know, glam girl, all those people in the book have that problem.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. Okay. This one is what advice would you give a significant other Mm -hmm. of that person that has a sex addiction to get them to seek help?
1: Yeah, I I work with a lot of people that are the significant others of Mm -hmm. sex and love addicts. And the number one thing I say is no matter how perfect you are, no matter how much you give to the relationship, it will never be enough. It has actually nothing to do with you. That when you are with a sex and love addict, they are incapable of completely committing because they don't have the tools. They didn't have the tools in the background. They're afraid of being abandoned afraid of love, afraid of intimacy. So there is actually nothing wrong with you. You cannot be the most perfect partner, have the perfect body, all that stuff. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I always say is you can't change who your partner is. You can only change how you react to them. So again, I always go back and work with them about where in you, that doesn't think you're lovable are showing up for, where you are not setting boundaries and sticking to them, where you are taking crumbs from a sex and love addict that's not getting recovery because it's like you're chasing the crumbs And I try to make that really prevalent. And if that person's partner is not getting recovery and getting help, because sex and love addiction is the hardest addiction, because underneath a chemical addiction, underneath the other ones is usually a sex and love addict. And that's the like PhD of all the programs. So if they are not getting the help, they are not going to change. You cannot change the chemistry of your brain. It's a progressive brain disease. You cannot change it by yourself your addict brain cannot fix your addict brain. So if they're not getting help, I help them with the tools to get out of the relationship and not get into another one of those partnerships down the line.
0: Okay. So I work with, um, alcohol and drug addiction Mm -hmm. and (laughs) that I think is part of that really surprised me when I first read your book was like, oh my gosh, the, pain that you went through with your withdrawn stuff oh yeah i don't think anybody's ever heard of unless you actually go through it yeah and and i know that you know you've talked about this with other people Mm -hmm. but it you know to me it didn't seem the same because i've had these these addicts in here that had to get medical help Mm -hmm. in order to Mm -hmm. go through there and oh my gosh when i when i read you laying on the floor crying and and you you know your husband couldn't come and and be with you and stuff my heart just went out to you
1: yeah it was torture
0: (laughs) and and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that but you had to go through it and I and I get that you had to go through it to get where you are yeah
1: yeah. I mean, when I work with a lot of addicts that had a chemical addiction, and I write about it in the book, you know, I've worked with people that had heroin addictions, and they said it's easier to get rid of heroin than to get rid of her, to get over this relationship. It's easier to get off alcohol for 30 years than go and work in sex and love addiction. Sex and love addiction is underneath, it's the core addictions as little kids that we, with the codependency, with the parent issues. We have that underneath and we then put chemical addictions on top of it. So usually it's more painful and it's more raw. I felt like when I was going through my withdrawal, that was nine months. I kid, I wrote about it. I kid you not, right. nine months of crying every day. I wanted to zip myself out of my skin and crawl out of my skin. That's how painful it was for me.
0: And and I read that and picked up on it and just broke my heart. Oh, Yeah. Okay, so what have you read Mm -hmm. um, or listened to that inspired you to write your book? And I'm going to add to that so you can answer that. But, and if there is someone, who do you give that credit to?
1: Like I said, I never wanted to write a book. I wasn't interested in ever telling my story. Um, I, you know, am of service. In my program, Sex and Love Addictions Anonymous, I've over a, almost 12 years now of recovery. So when I actually wrote it, it wasn't for me. It was to help the people that didn't understand because what was happening is all these younger generation were coming into the program. Can't they're impotent porn addiction is out of control. Um, masturbation is out of control, young girls over-sexualizing and being so disconnected from themselves, young men over-sexualized at a young age looking at those images are having so much trouble connecting. Then on top of it, the social media aspect where they're all so connected thinking, but they're actually disconnected. Um, When that started occurring and we had 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds coming into the room, that is what actually made me want to share my story. That I'm a woman, I have a, I'm have a sex and love addict. This doesn't define me as a person. It doesn't mean that I'm broken or alone. Right. That a lot of people in our society, over 30 million people in the United States have this addiction. Over 38% of those are women. And that statistic was seven years ago. So it's blown up I'm and mad. that there is... Yeah, there is hope on the other side. So it wasn't really any other person. It was this younger generation that's struggling so much. And I'm like, wow, if I would have known about this when I was 20, I would have stopped hurting so many people. I would have stopped cheating. I would have stopped looking for the unavailable person because I'm unavailable. I would have stopped all the damaging that I was doing in my wake. And I think about it like the ripple effect. I would hurt someone, then they would go and hurt somebody else. And then it's that's Stone where you throw a stone and it ripples out and it keeps going. And now I want to throw the stone and help people. Like if I help one person not damage someone else, then they won't damage someone else and so on and so on. So it was really about helping this younger generation get out of this horrible cycle with social media and all that sexuality that they don't understand. And I have a young son that's three wow. and a half like. I do not want my son to grow up in this world looking for outside things to fill him and give him his worth. So if I can do the work and help other people that then helps my son live a better healthier, healthier life, then I've
0: done my job. Right. Um, I remember and this, do you remember the movie Coyote Ugly? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I came home from <laughs> from work and my son who was at the time ten was watching <gasps> that movie with his dad and I'm ah. like what are you doing? I was so upset and he's like my husband's like what? And I said he has no business at that age watching this.
1: Yeah. Like
0: mm-hmm. there's nothing and I'm like, uh, there is. There and is then I, and then I found him like um, looking at some Playboy magazine. Well it was when Barrow Fawcett's big thing came through. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, you don't do that. They thought it was cool. You know, it was son and father. And I'm like, it's not cool. It's, it's not, cool. not cool. And so, you know, that reminded me of that too, that um, you had talked about that. And I really believe that parents have to pay more attention. Yes, completely. As their children are young and what they're seeing and hearing and 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 be open to them, you know, so they feel like they can talk to you about it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I
0: grew up with,
1: you know, hippier parents that that showed the sexuality and Mm -hmm. it totally desensitized me at a young age and not that they didn't know that. And it's like, we have to be very cognizant that a young brain cannot handle violence, cannot handle sexuality, seeing images too young because it does desensitize them. I mean, so many young boys I have worked with that are just so disconnected from their sexuality that they are not interested in first kisses or holding hands with someone or that first, you know, when you're interested, they are totally, they don't feel that at all. And it's so
0: sad to me that they're acting like adults before they're actually adults. Right. Right. And I think that's something that we have to talk to them about at the right age. Yeah. That was my older son, my, my youngest son, uh fortunately for me my husband was out of town working a lot he was in new york Mm -hmm. and and i'm in chicago you know we live in chicago and so the youngest one basically i was raising by myself without just visiting dad once in a while Mm -hmm. totally different totally different you know he he respects women he respects himself um i taught him that you know first of all you if you really, really care about the girl that you're with, um, mm-hmm. he's 21 now, but mm-hmm. he's still the same way. If you care about that person, you have to understand how important that first time is. Yeah. To, to you know, and and to guys, a lot of times it doesn't mean anything. You know, it is. Yeah. Just well, like, a lot of
1: women I know
0: doesn't. And mean now anything. it's a lot of women. Yeah, because we wanted do.
1: like power and control yeah. over our bodies, especially if our bodies are used at such a young age are over-sexualized. And we do it too, because society tells us, you know, dance like this, wear this, look like this, look older than you are, put on makeup. No, you have to look like this. And it's like, I got trapped in that. And that's where I found my power. I felt so powerless inside over the energy coming at me that that was the only way I could own it myself is to have power and control over someone else that they could not impinge on me
0: yeah and so that's kind of what i wanted to get out to my listeners too was i i really hope that as as parents they will Mm -hmm. start early yeah it's important to to help and and to try to have a good relationship or get out of it so these kids don't have to see you know a a bad relationship between their parents and not even know how to build their own
1: yeah Uh, i mean that's important to my husband and i too you know he's mm -hmm. in recovery for 33 years and we really try to model a healthy relationship for our son because we, our parents didn't model that for us because they didn't have the tools. So it's like, how do you communicate? How do you talk to each other? Are you showing each other affection and love, you know, not fighting dirty, Mm -hmm. How to, you know, not bring that toxicity or have those conversations in front of those young ears. That's not appropriate, you know, but also my, you know, my son, if we have a bit of a argument, he'll be like, are you guys happy? At three and a half, he's like are you happy? And he gets louder. And we looked mm-hmm. at him the other day and I said, you don't need to worry if mommy and daddy are happy. Like you don't need to ask us if we're happy. Right. We're, we're having a conversation and we can disagree. We still love each other. We still love you. So it's teaching that there is conflict in the world, but you have to take care of it in a certain way. And you don't, he doesn't have to be worried how other right. people are
0: feeling. And he doesn't have to worry that it's about him or that it's exactly. going to him. Yep. Okay, so going on, Mm -hmm. I don't know why I chose this number, Mm -hmm. but who are three people who have been the most influential to you?
1: Oh, geez. So I would have to say, you know, my husband is one of them. Mm -hmm. He really helped me find a God, find, you know, my serenity, um, show up as my authentic self the good, the bad, the ugly. He's seen all of it. And to have a partner stand next to you and not judge you for the things you've done in your life has Mm -hmm. been very beautiful. But Like I've said, he could leave me and I'll be fine without him. He doesn't complete me as a person. That's where I just want to make that very clear. Like, he's not my soulmate. He didn't complete me. He didn't define me as a woman. I define myself. Um, The other thing is my sponsor. He is a, a really hardcore badass. He likes to, like, mirror for me, like, when he I'll like call him and be like, I'm having a bad day. I just got rejected. I didn't get a job blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Oh, poor Brianne. So sorry for you. Like, he's just like, puts (laughs) me in my place, which I need it. Sometimes, you know, we all have bad days, but we also have someone to be like, why don't you stop and be grateful for what is in your life? Look around, look at all the things you've done. Look at how many people you've helped. Look how much you love your son. And so that, and then another person that is just really meant a lot to me is my sister. She's like my partner in crime for life. Like she would help me bury the bodies. So,
0: you know, and she's
1: a strong woman and she is a writer herself and worked in the magazine world. So I just really take a lot of my strength and I can go to her being dyslexic and she, you know, points me in the right direction and all
0: that. So, yeah. So can, are you allowed to like, is there stuff I can look up on her and read?
1: Yeah, yeah, you can look her up. Her name's Stephanie. Um
0: I did, Stephanie I did Davis. See yeah. That. yeah.
1: Yeah, she's um she's a great human being. She I always say she's a better version than me. She's like the nicer
0: version than me. Is she younger or older than me? She's older. She's two years older. Okay. <laughs> okay. I actually have a little okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah. there would be one other person that you would bring up. Just, Who tell me? Gabrielle.
1: Oh yeah. Gabrielle's great. You know, she came in and I didn't know her at all. I met her through Jana Kramer and she, I was going through publishing and working with publishers and she really pointed me in a different direction, like owning your own voice, putting your stuff out there, not waiting for someone to tell you yes. And she really walked me through, you know, we were strangers at first. She really walked me through how, to own my own project and own my own book. And I'm forever indebted to her. I mean, she's such a great woman. So, yeah. Thank you yeah. for mentioning that. She is a great, I have so many people in my life that I need I to thank. I know you do, and, yeah. I know you do.
0: That just, um, you know, obviously I've read her books and yes. she did an amazing job. I had to get her audio too, you know, besides- Yeah, the she's great. Stuff. And, uh, She's, she's very good at, at talking to everybody that she can. In fact, I think a little bit too much, probably. I, I don't know how she's not overwhelmed. <laughs> well, right. she
1: doesn't have kids right That's now. True. So there I am like, wait true. till you have a kid. We were That's hanging true. out and I was like, wait you're you'll have such limited time you have to like work everything in
0: well and and i think somebody on one of her podcasts i don't remember who it was but told her she needed to like actually put her in her shoes and said you need to hire somebody else to look at some of those things you know you need Mm -hmm. to take more time for yourself and i i I don't remember what which one it was but i remember hearing it anyway (laughs) so um what is one What common myth about your profession that you would want to debunk?
1: Common myth about my profession that being a Hollywood actress, making Mm -hmm. money, having a career is going to complete you as a person. I think a lot of people think if they have a number of followers, likes, people that, you know, are fans, you know, money in the bank, the house, the car, all that stuff is like going to make them complete is like the biggest myth ever. I mean, like I say, I work with so many A-list celebrities you know, huge people in the entertainment business that I obviously cannot name and they have everything and their insides are empty, empty, so, empty completely. And they don't understand. They, they strive for this and get it. And then it's even more debilitating and tra- traumatic for them because it doesn't connect their outsides right. Don't connect to their insides. And that's more painful. And that's what I try to tell people. It is easier to live on the street as an addict and be in the dirt and the chaos, because that's how you actually feel inside. It is harder on your spirituality and your emotions to live in this like pristine, glamorous world and be so empty because you are so empty. So, that would be the main thing. Is like, do not come to Hollywood if you are empty, because it will amplify your emptiness. I mean, we see all see all the addicts in Hollywood that have everything and then commit suicide, do drugs. Right. It's just so it's 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 very very sex and love addiction is very rampant in Hollywood.
0: <laughs> that, I, I'm getting that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and don't you think people? I remember as a child thinking, oh, I want to be an actress. It's Mm -hmm. so glamorous. Um, And I'll just briefly tell you, I ended up, this is so long ago, so it'll tell my age. (laughs) But I was actually in the very first movie that Renee Zillweger was in. Mm. um, And it took place in San Francisco, and it was called The Bachelor, which it it didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Like Rotten Tomatoes, I think, is like 8%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh but but i had to be there mm-hmm. like we were there three months and and i had to run up and down the streets in barefoot in a long wedding dress and you know cold and mm-hmm. hours of reshooting and reshooting and i realized technology has changed since then you know oh no
1: you have to reshoot you have to do that and i think with secret life of the hollywood so
0: glamorous you no, know, and that's what glamorous in the book, is when you go to the red carpet. That's glamorous.
1: But, yeah, that's not what Hollywood is about. I no. mean, that's few and far between, and that's why I think in the book "Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict" that I really wanted it to portray the world of Hollywood from a working actress, not the A-list right. celebrity that has everything given to them, where you have to pound the pavement, where you are working fourteen hours a day, you know, waiting for your call, you know, if you're number five or below on a call sheet, it's like your life is different than the A-list celebrity. And so I really wanted to to bring the audience
0: into that world. And I think you did. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Now this one's going to throw you off. Okay. We're almost done. Okay. So if you were in my shoes, Mm -hmm. what would have you asked yourself that I didn't?
1: Oh my God. I don't (laughs) <laughs> Let's see, what would I have asked me? Um, I don't think there is a question that I have. I would think that you should ask me. I'm, I'm, I can't think of one there. You stumped me. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually stumped you, really? Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, if there isn't anything, okay. Um, okay. And then where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, please reach out to me if anything I've said,
1: if you are interested in sex and love addiction, how to look and see if you are one, there's 40 questions you can answer on uh, SLAA, 40 self-diagnosed questions. no, we get on S L A A. Type in Google S L A A 40 self diagnosed Questionnaire. It will come right up. You reach out to me on Instagram at the Brianne Davis or TikTok, the dot Davis. Go to secretlifenovel.com. If you want to read any of the articles I've written for Cosmo or Daily Beast or The Drill or um self all those or interviews i've done or if you want to get a signed copy of the book or go to amazon for the audible kindle and the book at see your life of a hollywood sex and love addict it's the longest title known to man
0: <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> and, and have, have you heard my story of like how many times i had to buy the book and 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 i got the audio and all that so yeah oh my gosh okay um <laughs> So we've got that part. This is going to go back to your career as an actress, but, and it's very brief. Uh What is one of your favorite movies or films that you would like our listeners to go back and watch?
1: Well, I really loved being on Lucifer. The part of Detective Dancer was such a fun role. She was like five different characters in mm-hmm. one so every scene I got to be a different person which was so exciting I, I love working on that set one of my favorite movies I did that not many people know about is called synchronicity it's um a sci-fi movie romance movie and I just love the character Abby she's like a hard badass journalist a sci-fi writer and she's just I just loved playing her uh, okay. and then I think another one I Love playing that I believe
0: is on Netflix still. Yeah, right?
1: Lucifer's on Netflix. It's season 5. Yeah. Yeah. Synchronicity I think is on Hulu now. Okay. 6 Six on History that I was on for two right. seasons. Right. Uh Lena Graves is like one of the sweetest kindest characters I've ever played. It was season 1 was really difficult to play while i was going through personal stuff so i'm really proud of that show it's on hulu now it was on A and h and history channel so yeah
0: okay there's (laughs) another one (laughs) last thing before we so would you tell our listeners Mm -hmm. um what is or has been brianna's biggest life struggle
1: Um, I think my biggest life struggle is getting rid of the compare and despair. I've grown up with that character defect. And that's why there's a whole chapter dedicated to it. Chapter seven in the book is how I get through the compare and despair, comparing my lives to others, comparing others' outsides to my insides, never fully having my feet in the present, always in the future or in the past, comparing to others and myself too So I think that's my biggest life struggle. That's the thing that can take me to my knees every time I get sucked back in. So every morning I hit my knees and ask God, my God, to to relieve me of that character defect. And every night I thank God for giving me another day and gratitude for the things that happened today. So I think that's like the main, my husband says that's the one that takes you to your knees every time. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, i i know you've got other things to do so yes. i'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. i thank you so much for putting up with all this the the, the schedule changing and then here uh-huh. thank you too, and i really appreciate your time oh well and, thank you for having me oh you're so welcome and you have a great day okay that little boy